teaching for tomorrow in the climate of today. Inspiring educators globally. Never stop learning. Never stop growing. The best teachers teach from the heart. Welcome to Powerful Pedagogy. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Powerful Pedagogy. I am super honored to have with me here Suzanne Axelson, who is the brilliant mind behind the blog Interaction Imagination. She's worked with children for over 30 years between, you know, being a preschool teacher, director, consultant, and teacher trainer over these years. And she has a book coming out in autumn 2022 on original learning. And so she's going to be talking with us today a little bit about her book, her theories, and just sort of how we can sort of deepen the play that is happening in our classroom. So welcome, Suzanne. I'm so honored to have you here today. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you. (laughs) Awesome. And so some of you may not know, but Suzanne and I just had like a, a quick little conversation before we started this podcast where we were sharing our experiences during the pandemic. And I was interesting, you know, it was very interesting to find out that in Stockholm, they did not necessarily undergo a lockdown with young children, whereas here in New York City, we did. And I would love to for you to just sort of speak on on that, on just sort of what the thinking was around that. So the Swedish government made the decision that children from one, because children under the age of one don't go to preschool, there's parental leave until then, up until the age of 16, should go to school every day because they'd weighed the benefits of how serious will they get sick, will they be hospitalized, will that impact how people get treatment, with what will be the potential mental health risks of lockdown, of not meeting their friends, not being able to play. And they looked at the evidence that they had at the time and saw that children weren't getting seriously sick and it wasn't spreading as fast amongst the young children at that time. And it wasn't. Even in my classroom, it wasn't. Yeah. So basically, parents were working from home Everyone who could work from home did work from home. We had to wash hands like crazy. We were outside a lot more, even more than usual. So those were the big differences, cleaned the entire places more. But children were allowed to play just as they always had done. And I think it's made a huge positive impact when I start comparing for my sister who lives in the UK and her daughter was in lockdown and the the feeling of depression and not being able to meet friends and not being able to do things compared to here in Sweden where things almost went on as usual. The evaluation afterwards, they came out, I think, earlier this year or late last year, showed that children who were 16, 17, 18 
and 19 who were impacted by lockdown because they had to do distance education instead. Those are the ones that had uh, the biggest issues. But even those children were still able, or youths, were still able to go and meet each other outside of school as long as they didn't hang out in big groups and, and preferably outside because most of the cafes were shut down and stuff as well. So there was a lot of, it wasn't a case we didn't have no precautions. There were lots of precautions, but there was no lockdown. But it, I think, and, and, and like I said, like it's still like, you know, just this, this emotional part of me, like uh, if my students last year could have just been freer in the classroom. I wonder sort of what those outcomes could have been. I know that this year in particular, Suzanne, like I saw children who had been in their homes for for a while and it was maybe their first time stepping out of the their house into a classroom and just sort of I hate using the word deficit, but just sort of the 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 way that they were playing. You could tell that they weren't so used to the socialization. It was like this new thing. Mm. And so, you know, in my in my last year in my teaching, this just this recent year, it was a lot of sort of making up for lost time. You know, I spent a year telling my students, don't share, you know, and then all last year was like, you gotta learn how to share. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very, you know, it, it was very different. But I think what hits home is that what you experience, like it just spoke to the right of the child that children have rights to. Yes. And I, and I think that was a, a large part of it, or that the children had the right to play, the right to their mental health, the, and understanding that play and children need children. They don't need adults in the same way. They need children to be able to access that kind of play. Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, there's a lot of talk today about, you know, the lack of free play and what this means for the development of young children. And I would love for you to share why, you know, why you feel free play is so important. And do you believe that it can affect our, our, our lives and the lives of young children? I think it's all about autonomy. Every single person alive, no matter what age we are, we need autonomy to thrive, to feel good, for our own mental health. If we don't have autonomy over our own lives, then we're not going to thrive. If other people are constantly telling us, you have to do this, you can't do that, you, can't, you have no self-control of your own life. And for you, the youngest children, the only time that they really have autonomy is in their play. So their play becomes this space where they can have control over their lives. They can feel that they can thrive. It's part of their mental health procedure and process. So I, I don't think it's necessarily a case of why play is most important. I, I think it's why autonomy is the most important and that play is the way children access their autonomy. My husband is a neuroscientist. So I asked him, you know, what is play? Right. <laughs> from a neuroscience point of view, from a brain point of view. And he said, play is the brain's way to learn to adapt to a complex world. So everyone is always playing. That's we powerful. always play throughout our entire lives because we're constantly having to adapt to a complex world. The only time that we won't play is because the world is not complex. It's, too, it's so simple. 
there's nothing that the brain needs to adapt to. Or there is a fear for unpredictable responses or negative responses, not just response, unpredictable negative responses. So you don't know what's going to trigger a negative response so that you don't dare to engage in play. So like in school, you see a lot of children, the moment the teacher's back is turned, they will start playing because they know that when a teacher turns around, they have to stop playing and that's when they get told off. But if they didn't know when the teacher was going to turn around or if they were turned around, someone else would say something that they were always at risk of being told off and they didn't know what it was that would trigger that, then the chances are they would stop playing because they didn't want to risk that trigger. Wow, that is powerful. And so basically I, we always play. We but do. But how we play is different. Right. So right. as an adult, I don't need to play mummies and daddies anymore because I am. Right, I'm a mother <laughs> a too. Right, right. <laughs> I'm a parent. I don't need to do that. Right. I live that reality. Right. I don't need to play going to work because I've done that. I have that experience. I don't need to play a whole load of different things because I've lived that experience. I, I understand it. But how I play will help me in my now. It's, it's a different kind of play. Often my play is about soothing or calming or relaxing or right. meeting other people and talking and exploring ideas. And all of these kind of things is my play is that, you know, it's, it's choice and it brings me joy. Yes, yes. And I think if it's not by my choice and I can't choose to quit and I can't choose to stay and I can't choose what I'm doing and I'm not finding it joyful, I'm finding it filled with anxiety, then it's not play. Yeah. And then the classic one is, you know, when you're busy doing something and like a whole hour's gone by and it feels like five minutes. Yes, yes. Again, you've been in a state of play. Yeah. Even if it can be at work you've kind of entered that play state and it's the same for children. And I think this is part of why I wanted to, the original learning as well was this, it's not just play or just work. It's this interweaving Balance. of playing yeah. and teaching and learning and understanding all together. It's this complexity, this wholeness. And it's not this dichotomy of, this is a time for play and this is the time for learning and this is when we teach and this is when you have to be child-free and this is when you have to be uh, teacher-led. It shouldn't be as so black and white as that. It's, it's so much more gray. And so that was my response to this frustration of this play-teaching-learning dichotomy to try and find where's a space that I can reflect and that's how original learning was born to find this space for myself personally at first and then I've just been sharing it with more and more people. That's amazing and I think one of the things you said that hit home and I hope people listen to is there's also space it's not just for children it's also for us as adults as ongoing learners you know to sort of implement and think about in our own lives. I think a huge problem as well is that we don't value children so therefore, we don't value the way children play. Mm, wow. And also, often we don't teach the way children learn or play. We teach the way adults do, so where we have a different ability to focus than what children do. So then if we're teaching the way that we focus and the way that we can sort away non-relevant things, 
then you know it's then again that's why the the play responsive part of original learning came into being because if we're going to teach the way that children play it's going to be connected to the way that the brain is learning rather than the way the adult thinks a child should play the way the adult thinks a child should learn the way then we teach according to these stereotypes and I, which i think sometimes can happen in play based because everyone gets i am basing this on play and suddenly a lesson which is adult led and the child has no choice in and maybe doesn't enjoy is called play based and it has nothing to do with play maybe just a little bit right. playful Right. And there's that moment where it sort of stops being play, you know, and I think that, you know, with, with in, in my classroom, like I, I didn't realize I was being as play responsive as I was, you know, like, you know, not just it's not about just sort of letting them just be, but it's also just seeing and listening to what they're doing and building on that. Like, how can I scaffold on what they're doing? How can I, you know, it just even make it more engaging. And I feel like all that, the, the, you know, the academic stuff, like it comes, it really does, you know, and you have to trust the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we can't be play responsive if we don't give children time to play. Mm, If we're always filling their time and micromanaging their time and giving them activities to do, then what we're doing is seeing the children respond to our directions and not actually play. Children need extended periods to go from where they were into the play and find their flow. And for some children, it can take them a few minutes to find their flow and other children can take up to half an hour before they find their flow. And if we're only given like a a 10-minute recess or a 20-minute recess or a half-an-hour recess, it means that some children are never entering a state of play. Yes, 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 yes. So I definitely encourage, you know, everyone listening to, you know, really sort of, you know, you can go to Suzanne's blog and and just see the differences between the idea of play-based and play-responsive. And I think it is time to shift our thinking into being a lot more play-responsive, you know, and that can look like, you know, how do you enhance, you know, the environment to sort of promote and keep those children engaged in something that they're already doing, right? Or, you know, how do you introduce new things? You know, how do you, you know, if they already are on a, a wavelength of, of, of discovery, like how do you, how do you enhance that? You know, so, so yes, I, I feel like, you know, you definitely have opened so many eyes with that. One of the things that you said that I, you know, I, f- I realized that in my own teaching I struggle with is that the adventurous play, and that includes like the war play, the fighting play, and I would love your thoughts on it. And, and if you could sort of speak from a perspective, like with all these, everything going on in schools, there's shootings, there's, you know, there's a lot going on as a teacher. We have lockdown drills where I have to, you know, usher all the children into bathroom and practice with them being quiet just in case bad people come in or what if we have to hide. These are things that let's say 10 years ago, I didn't you know, really have to do. Yeah. So when a child, let's say, makes a gun out of Legos or makes something to shoot out of Legos, 
I do feel sort of this obligation to like, there's no guns allowed in school. There's no shooting. And I, and I, and I, I have said that, you know, even this past year, I have said that, but I would love, I would just love a deeper conversation around it. Like, what are your thoughts on that sort of, you know, the war play, the fighting play, the adventurous play, and just sort of children's access to it? I think it's always a very complicated thing, mostly because it comes with so, it's so relational. It's, it's about the adult's relationship with what they think is risky and dangerous and their need to protect and their own personal experiences with all of these issues. I mean, for me in here in Sweden, this is not a reality that we have. We don't have to train our children. We have different gun laws here. Wait, you don't have lockdown drills in Sweden? No. You don't? No. no. Wow. wow. We have a piece of paper that we have to do as teachers of what happens, what would we do if something like, but it's such an incredibly rare circumstance mm. here in Sweden yeah, and in many other parts in the world that don't need to practice. We do practice going out if it's for fire escapes and stuff, yeah, you know, fire, those drill. kind of yeah, fire drills yeah. and things. We do that, but we don't have to do that kind of practice at all. It's not part of our reality. So maybe I'm not the best person to talk about from that perspective because I don't have that experience. But I do have experience about gunplay in Palestinian refugee camps where it was literally every single night you could hear the guns being shot, you could hear the sound bombs and other bombs and the fighting um, going on. It was every night, every wow. night, wow. both Adults and children were being woken up by the sound of gunfighting yeah. and worse. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the potential of soldiers coming into their homes and just doing their thing. Right. And that was their daily reality. Their children had a lot of real life toy guns, you know, looking real right. in the preschools. And schools to play really? with. Yeah. I mean, and when I first got there, I was so shocked. Yeah. Um, because it wasn't part of this reality where, you know, oh, sh we shouldn't have guns in schools. But it was part of their process to learn and about, make sense of it yeah, all. Yeah. Make sense of what was happening around them. And also, if your parent is a, a police officer or a soldier, then if you're saying that the tool of their trade is bad and evil, it also, how does that child then have a relationship with their parent mm. and what their parent does? Yes. And again, is, there, there is no right or wrong in, in this because it's too complex to say it's black or white. It is. It's just too complex. I, I mean, I do a lot of rough and tumble. And again, the the premise of doing that is I, I give children who are ready to engage in that kind of play that means they have the ability to self-regulate mm -hmm. it means that they're going to enjoy that they means they know how to stop when someone says stop so it's learning about consent we usually have it on a smallish space with just a small number of children so that I can really understand and respond to their play I've told them when they started to engage in it that I will say, look, I'll give three chances. So on the third chance, it will be stop. Right. And 
they, they understand that if they do something that's inappropriate or you can see it's done with anger or frustration rather than with joy. And it's much better to stop it a little bit early before they get too tired to be able to self-regulate anymore and stay in that state of joy. I agree. And if they know that, okay, but we can do this again tomorrow when I'm rested because you've explained to them, I can see you're getting tired now. I think it could be a good idea that you do something else. And I've seen children who've been playing dinosaurs, wrestling on the ground, who transformed into baby kittens, who needed to be taken care of by other children, who had not <laughs> wanted to be in the rough and tumble dinosaur game. <laughs> right. So you know, they were able to transition constantly. I asked some girls once why they liked to play <laughs> war games and their answer, I will never forget the boys' expressions, their answer was, it's the only way we can cuddle the boys. <laughs> because they knew that in this right. war game, it was a little bit rough and tumble, that they had physical contact with right. the boys, they were five and six, that the boys would accept. Yeah. And they worked out that this is the only way that they could interact positively with the boys in this way. So, you know, sometimes there's all these different reasons behind that we don't pay attention to what it is that is actually being played. What is it that the actual child is learning in this process? And that's what being play responsive is. You're responding to what is being played by understanding and then providing, okay, the only reason this rough and tumble game is safe is because it's on this fluffy mat. Uh, it's limited. I know it's not going to disturb other children's play because it's not just about this children's play frame, as they say in play work. It's also the other children's play frames that they don't get disturbed too. So I'm looking at how many multiple different play frames or play is happening and how can I protect them all, uh, encourage them all, and allow them to continue with the flow that they have. So it's, you know, it's not the simple, oh, stop it or continue it or support it. It's like, yeah. The, it goes it, so much deeper. It's so you know, much deeper. It, you, know, if, you know, even when I, I see it, I'm like, you know, we're looking at facial expressions, right? I'm looking for when that smile mm. changes or if it continues to be a smile. And I think, you know, I... I mentor a lot of young teachers and, you know, they always get a little frazzled when that rough and tumble play start. And I'm like, well, here's how you sort of interpret sort of the feelings and the emotions behind it. Like, look at their faces. Like mm. you can ask them, I do the three, three time thing. Like, you know, I'll let you know, like, you know, three times I'll give you three chances. And then, you know, we're probably going to have to shift gears. And also, like you said, for the children around it, it does teach this idea of consent. Do you want to play this game? then you can tell them you don't want to play this game or let them know you're not playing this game. But I think it's so healthy for children to roll around, to wrestle. And if you look at any animal, cub or young, they all do it. Yes. If yes. you look at little baby bears or puppies, they all do it. Yeah. It's like an, it's a natural instinct that we have for touch and learning about our power and, you know, it, and playing just being free and the way we experience others, it, it's so necessary. And so I do hope more teachers embrace it and understand the learning that is taking place during. I mean, it's more of a choreography than fighting. It's not fighting. And I think it's the whole play fighting that often gets people, like risky play, people hook onto that word risk and think it's dangerous. It's, no, yeah. 
risky play is within the flow of play. If it's outside of play, then and outside of the child's capability and uh, goes into anxiety rather than that tummy tickling sense of fun, then it's going into danger. Some children maybe struggle knowing where that edge is, and that's why we have to be play responsive to understand the child where is the play, where is the non-play, so that we keep them safe, that they stay within the risky play zone that is safe, but not as safe as possible. Right. It's, it's that, <laughs> right. Uh, that area, that little bit of area at the edge of their capability that says, oh, are you really ready to jump this high? That looks a little bit scary. And they're going, hmm. I think I can. And they jump it and they manage because it's just, but if they were to go 10 centimeters higher, they'll go, no, I'm not ready for that yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I always ask that child who has like done something like, like, how did that feel? Mm. Like, mm. let's tap into that moment. How did that feel? Were you nervous? Were you, did you feel brave? You know, this, are you going to do it again? Do it again. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That rush it is, it's, it's an amazing feeling yeah. because, and, and that excitement and, and it's that adrenaline that the brain is releasing so that you do it again and again and again, because that's what yeah. the brain needs to be able to make all those neural connections so that it's, the brain is not having to think about it every time it goes onto automatic because the connection is pronounced enough so that you, in the beginning, walking is a kind of risky play for like one and two year olds, (laughs) you know, because (laughs) they're going to crash into things. They're going to fall down. It's like when they're first learning to walk, that is like risky for them because there's no guarantee it's going to work. And they keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it until they've mastered it and they don't have to think about it anymore because then they have brain space to think on something else. And this is why children will want to jump and jump and jump or play on the stairs because they need to manage their fears and they need to manage all of these different things and create these little highways in their brains so that they don't have to think about every time they go down the stairs, they can go down the stairs and think about something else. Exactly, exactly. It's it's huge. I know we, we don't have a lot of time left, but I would love, I know we're both moms, just a, a bit of, of information. Um, I have a 21-year-old daughter, but when she was in school, there was some learning things that she was experiencing and, you know, organizational things. And so parenting from that perspective, it, it, it taught me so much. It taught me so much. And I know that you are the mother of three. Yes. Wow, I love it. You're the mother of three children in the autism spectrum. And I would just love for you to share just sort of whether it's, you know, what are some lessons that you've learned? What are some hopes that you have as sort of, you know, we push forward in this, in education and in sort of this inclusiveness and in sort of thinking and understanding like that children have a hundred language, a hundred ways of learning and processing like what are some of your hopes from that I think one of the biggest things that my children have taught me is coming back to this whole play responsive that I need to respond to how my children are playing because their playing is rooted in how their brain needs to adapt to the world that they are having both from the sense of how they're going to evolve and develop 
but also how they're going to soothe themselves so they can manage in a very normative, neurotypical world that's not always very forgiving. And it has given me the strength to see each child's like curve. Everyone has like a learning curve, don't they? We all do. Yeah. Every single human being. Yeah. Yeah. But some curves are a little bit slower getting started yeah. than others. But the problem is, is this normative way to view play and learning that says, says that this is the way the curve goes and anyone that's slow at starting, we've got, that's that deficit, that the word that you didn't like mentioning I, earlier. I don't like deficit. Yeah, it's, it's horrible, yeah. isn't it? And it's like, they're not yeah. on a deficit. They're just having to play with these things a little bit longer in this way, which maybe is individual play or parallel play for a little bit longer so that they can then evolve in their own way and maybe catch up later or, or have or always be completely on their own curve. But I think there's so much focus on making children play socially, making them play in this way or that way, uh, catching up so that they're seen as developed or as evolved or as good as their peers when it has zero application to where this child is in their own personal development. So instead of being able to evolve as their brain needs them to for their own well-being, they're being forced to pretend to be a normative child. And, I, and that's such a disadvantage because then they're learning skills that they're not ready for, they have no need for yet, or is actually damaging to their own way of evolving. And I think this is why it's so important to be play responsive, where you understand that all play is valuable. There isn't this hierarchy of individual, then parallel, then social play. We all need periods throughout our entire lives or it's individual play. We all sometimes just need to do parallel play, no matter yeah. how, you know. You do your adults. thing, I'll do my <laughs> yeah. thing, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you read your book, I play my game, you do yeah. that. Yeah. And sometimes we want to be social and have social play. We need all these different kinds of play throughout our, time, uh, throughout our lives. And there isn't uh, a prestige to this. It's fine if some children want to play on their own for a little bit longer because maybe they need to deal with this sensory stuff or they need to be able to process other things so that they can be around other people when they're a little bit older. Some children are not ready emotionally or physically to read or write until they're about 12, while other children are ready. I've met two- and three-year-olds that are ready. So this yeah. gap of being ready to read and write is somewhere between three and 12, and they will all learn it. And like for my son was a late he was about eight or nine when it just clicked and he never went through the stage. Yeah. He went straight into reading fluently um, because he was ready for it. He Basically, he was sick of having to wait for me to read the next stage of the Pokemon game. <laughs> <laughs> there was no like, meaning to reading yeah. until the Pokemon game came around. He goes, oh, and he's going, no, mom, I can't wait for you now. I've got to do right. this myself. Right. So he learned it. Yeah, and that's beautiful. And I think even... One of the words I stay away from, especially as I'm, let's say, counseling parents, is normal, deficit, delay. I, I really don't like those words as an educator. I feel like it does such an injustice to us as human beings when we view people from that lens, you know. And it's um, not valuing the complexity of what learning and play is. 
because I see that all three of my children have, and myself as an autistic person myself, I have an amazing ability to see the very small and the greater picture all at the same time. It's like I can just go in and out. And as a teacher, I could hear everything, <laughs> like every single conversation. Yeah. I knew what was going on and I could sense it. But I get really, really tired. So I would know that I can do this as my superpower as long as I know how to recharge properly. Yes. And the problem is it took me 40 years to work that out. Right, right. Uh, and I think there's still people who are expecting children to be in classrooms and do all of these things and learn and do all this social and all of that without actually giving them skills. How do you actually recharge? Was it the recombobulate? I loved that when I heard about it. It was like often you feel discombobulated, but how do we recombobulate? Yes, I love that. And it's true. How do we teach children? Self-care, you know, mm-hmm. self-care is, you know, I think just even after the pandemic has been like a trending thing, you know, how are you pouring into yourself and what does self-love and self-care look like? But what does that look like for our, our, our students and our children? You know, what, how do we put that emphasis on, you know, what feels good? What are you, you know, whether it's learning how to self-soothe or, or learning how to rev up, like whatever they sort of need to fill their cups. We talk about filling our cups all the time, Mm. but what do children need to fill their cups? And every child is different. Every child is different. Absolutely. So my neuroscientist husband, his specialization is sleep and rest. And so I've always had a big focus on sleep and rest as part of the cognitive and social emotional part of the day because I think it's when children can actually de-stress so that they can manage the rest of the day if they have like a pause during the middle of the day a rest Uh, they learn if they're just lying down and resting they don't have to fall asleep but they can go okay I'm comfortable with my inner voice right because how often do I mean as a child there was not all like screens and it was walk bands originally you know iPods (laughs) and all of these different things to to listen to music we we either sang in the car or we daydreamed yeah and I think of children these days that don't have as much time to daydream and there's a whole bunch of research about the the need for daydreaming it's the default mode for your brain it's when it's resting it's really really resting yes yes and, and I think we, you know, we have to get back to that. This has been amazing, like amazing, amazing, amazing. And thank you just so much for being who you are, for doing the work that you do, and just for wanting more. And I don't know, I might be moving to Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of people usually say that when I've spoken to them. Like, oh my goodness, like what? I really, um, I, I, think, I, I think a lot of people thought like, this is a global thing. Like we are all on lockdown, you know, but no, we were not. And, you know, it, it, it's a beautiful thing to sort of hear that, 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 you know, depending on where you were in the world, it looked very different. And so, and of course there's bad things that happened here is there's no way of saying that everything was good. That right, was the right decision. Right. No one knows yet what was the right decision about this pandemic because we've never experienced it in this way in the culture that we have. It was completely new. And I think we're still going to learn a lot of lessons from all of we that. Are. 
Absolutely. And so if people, you are coming out with a new book in the fall, which I'm very excited about reading. And the book is going to be on the original learning approach. It is a weaving play, learning and teaching together. Yeah. I'm so excited about that. All right. Well, kudos and blessings to you, Suzanne. Thank you so much for, for being with us here today. This was lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Powerful, powerful.